This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower because nobody else volunteered. I'm here with my friend Brian Chinister of Genesis. Welcome back to the show, first and foremost. So give people a little background on on you, please, because we go back a ways. We do. Um, I'm going to start with something that, that I'm really passionate about right now, Mark, in, in terms of getting into my background, because um, I've been in the public sector marketing space for my whole career. Um, and during this time, have just been able to witness some really strong marketers um, at the same time, some really weak marketers. And right. what I've found is that the the ones that are the strongest really have such a deep knowledge of the industry um, and can really be consultative with their sales teams, really drive strategy and, and be effective. And I look at it as being more proactive instead of reactive. And it's really become a passion of mine to to be part of this community in that way. Um, it's one of the reasons why I, I do my podcast. Um, it's one of the reasons why I work with Government Marketing University. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to work for a few companies now that have allowed me to evolve what my role is. And uh, Genesis is now one of those. So being able to take a look at what the future of the company is going to be in the public sector is is part of my remit from a strategic standpoint and from uh, an external marketing and communication standpoint. So I am loving this. This role feels like it's tailor-made for me. Um, and honestly, the company, it's been getting incredible growth over the past two years because of COVID. But I literally started on the day that the executive order around customer experience came out from the Biden administration. And I think um, not only are we really positioned to to make an impact in the community, but I felt like that was a really good sign that I made the right decision. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, passion about marketing is something that I've had for ever since I figured out I liked marketing. And when I started my company in 85, marketing was like the bastard child. So I started proselytizing for and about marketers early, highlighting marketing programs that I saw or was lucky enough to be a part of. And, you know, I, I guess I just never stopped because uh, like you, you know, G Mark, you gave me a whole new opportunity, a whole new venue to share things, you know, so I have the books, I have the radio show, I have my, my column and Lord knows how often I post on LinkedIn, <laughs> I, I, I lose count, but, you know, sharing that and now being with you in the mentor program at G Mark, you and and several other of my really good friends well it's uh, honestly what what you're bringing up is a really good point and one of the reasons why i have the passion that i do and i have the ability to have the passion that i do at at the time that i do is is because frankly people like yourself and others we we all stand on somebody else's shoulders right um i i can i can see mark every time i every time i see your shoulders are are plenty strong because you're holding a lot of us up. Um, and there's, there's other people out there that, um, and I, 
honestly, by being part of this mentor protege program with GMark U, I, I want to be able to move it forward so somebody else can stand on mine and somebody else can stand on theirs. So I'm excited about the work that, uh, that I know our friend uh, Luann Brosman has done um, with this program, as well as Stephanie Geiger. And I'm glad to be a part of it. I'm glad we can par be part of moving this community forward. Yeah, it it it's a rush, and you know, and that and that's not the only thing. I mean, we have uh, we're going to have two game conferences this year. I was talking yeah. to Steph yesterday about some things that we can do there. You know, it, it doesn't stop. But this is this was my first year in the mentor program. It's not your first year, but I've been mentoring people uh, consciously and unconsciously probably the entire time I've been in the market. Um, and, and when I get feedback that's positive from those people. So like I posted the other day, uh, JD Kathuri is saying about the top 20 Marcoms mm -hmm. in, in the market. Um, one of them, a, a, a woman of extraordinary breadth and depth, thanked me for posting it and thanked me for being her mentor. And I'm going, holy crap. Um, <laughs> It's rewarding, right? I mean, I, I love I love some of the conversations you have with people and seeing them grow. I, I'll give you a great example. I was uh, talking to a woman, um, Jen Duderman. She was part of my very first mentor protege program with uh, GMark U. And at the time, she was in a job she didn't like. And the reason why she joined the program was she wanted career advice. She wanted to understand how to navigate her career and do these things. And um, during, during her time in the program, I want to say about halfway through, she actually got a job offer um, with a great company, uh, accepted the job and loved it. And I just spoke with her yesterday because we wanted to connect because she actually just accepted. She's, another company reached out to her. She's moved up in her career now into a, a director level role. Um, for public sector marketing. So we got to connect and it was really cool to see everything come full circle because at the very beginning of that program, she was in a job she really didn't like, was really struggling from a confidence perspective. Um, even though she had all the tools, she had no reason to struggle, um, but just was in that, in that place where she needed a little bit of confidence and a little um, motivation and a little bit of support. And now it, it comes full circle to where companies are coming after her because they, they're seeing the value. And I, it was just such a rewarding thing to see that come all the way around. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that if, if there was a budget crunch, market marketing would be the first thing to go. Exactly. And not anymore. And thank God. Well, it's one of the reasons why I have the passion, right? Because if marketers can make themselves more strategic pieces of the organization, a, a strategic partner in sales, in, in all different facets, right? Even in product and engineering, then you become invaluable. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of marketers do, uh, impacting change in a more strategic way. And that's one of the reasons why they're not the first one on the chopping block anymore. So it's, yeah. I, I think we're at a good time. We, we are, but you know, and that, that brings me to something that we, we discussed earlier offline, and that is, you know, the, the woman I'm mentoring through the GMark U program, uh, names are not being mentioned today, um, has a problem internally at her organization being heard. And usually women have a problem, especially marketing people. And I don't have any experience in that because 
I, I get heard regardless of whether people want to hear me or not. But I hooked her up with two other mentors from our program, plus another person. Uh, and she's already had conversations with one of them. And the other two are queued up for next week. So um, so she's, she's going to get valuable advice on that. But that's an area that you get into as well. I, I get into it just because I'm passionate and like you, I don't have a lot of experience in it. And that's why I've, I've tried to be more intentional about it on, on my show. Um, I've had numerous, uh, female leaders that have come on from both, uh, the government side and, and the industry side. And it's a question I ask all of them. What, what's some advice that you would give to, um, women entering the government technology space or that are in it and, they they absolutely light up because they're all too excited to be able to give some of that advice and some of the stories that i i hear on the show about it I, again is, is one of the reasons why i ask and i i know you you and i were again we're talking offline i've become more intentional about it because i have a daughter and it's not something i used to think about and she's going to be three this year and i want to know that i'm at least leaving or doing my part whatever small part that is to leave a better environment for her to go into. She might not go into the space. She might go into another space, but um, to know that I am going to, to help create uh, a better place for her to land um, in whatever small way I can do that by having some of these conversations um, with, uh, with these women that are doing amazing things is, is the least I can do. Um, and that's again, why I feel so passionate about it. Yeah, for people who were around in the early mid '90s, they may remember that my daughter Aurora, when she was three, used to uh, attend networking functions and business meetings with me, and it always used to shock. Never shocked the people <laughs> at Women in Technology, uh, except that it was me bringing a girl. But it, you know, you walk into a boardroom with a three-year-old, you pop her on a chair, you give her a chunk of bagel to gnaw on, and people are just looking at you like you got, you know three years, 10 eyes, whatever. I love um, it. I, I mean, I would love to be, be able to do that with my daughter. My only concern would be she might try to take over the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but but that might improve the meeting. You never know. That is true. Oh, it definitely would. It definitely would. There you go. Uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Tower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Brian and I are actually going to talk about uh, other stuff. Uh, maybe not. We like talking about our kids. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Tower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Brian Chittister of Genesis and also of Government Huddle. That is the name, right? The Government Huddle, yeah, my podcast. There you go. It is well worth your time to find it and listen. So uh, we met when you were... Uh, a researcher or researcher plus at MX group a long time ago. And we met because I started reading your posts, uh, which were great back then gotten better since, but I I'd see you occasionally out there in the social sphere um, on the net. So tell me how you're leveraging social for for you, for Genesis, for the podcast, for for your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's that's a good point because it's everything's kind of interrelated, right? Um, I mean, first of all, let, let me start by saying to me, the pandemic has really 
change the way we might define professionalism, right? And it, I think the old standards are still there, but I also think professionalism is also now authenticity and just being your true self and, and kind of letting what you're interested in and what your passions are really come out. And that's generally my approach to social media, Mark. I, I start every day. I mean, I'm, I'm up early anyway, but I start my day uh, just going through and reading because I want to see and get inspired by some of the things that are happening. And what I try to do is share some of the things that resonate with me, uh, especially considering that the past few years, my job has been global in nature. I adamantly believe that I think we get really narrow focused here within the U S around the impacts that are happening around the world in areas that we're interested in Um, digital transformation and government is definitely one. And there's so many really cool things happening out there from developed countries, underdeveloped countries, et cetera, that are, that are really trying to make their mark and evolve that, that we can take some inspiration from. So when I'm reading some of these stories, I like to share them, give my thoughts on them, how I think they could be leveraged here and in other areas. Um, and just shed some light on some of the great things happening around the world that that's honestly my approach. Uh, it's, it's as authentic as I can get. And hopefully that's one of the reasons why it's, it's resonating. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's amazing. I I've been a solopreneur my entire career, uh, or at least the last 37 years of it. And, um, I used to have to, you know, pry my butt out of my chair, get in the car, drive to Virginia, because that's where all the networking was. And in the last two plus years, I've probably pushed uh, over a thousand virtual meetings, primarily Zoom, some Teams, some WebEx, but I, I'm addicted now. I, I love it. Um, I want live networking again. I want a live audience to speak to again. But, you know, is is it here to stay? Is it is it ingrained now? Are we going to get back to anything close to what it once was? That's interesting. I've had that conversation with a few people, um, coworkers, friends, et cetera. Um, and, and the honestly, the answer is I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But I think there are more factors involved than than people realize. One of them is just the the workforce that's going to be in place. This the, the next generation of of people coming into the workforce and what their preferences are. I mean, other it, others are. Do you have a proclivity to wanting to go into the office or not? I've I've been working remote for coming up on five or six years now, so pre COVID, and honestly, I love it. But I I also <laughs> I, I tend to index a little bit more robotic and, and not needing the, the, the water cooler talk like some people need. Um, and I'm outgoing enough to know if I need to collaborate, I'll reach out and I'll do it. I, I won't kind of stay in my own little shell. So it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. And, and I think leaders within government, within industry are seeing that they need to be adaptable to, to what their workforce needs and really listen. And I think that's the biggest thing in terms of social media. I think it's unequivocally here to stay. I think it's been an incredible way to network, like you said, and um, and also meet people that can help you. Um, not just, I mean, not just having an open network to to communicate at, but creating bi-directional conversations. That to me is the ultimate value. 
right? It's, it's being able to open your network up and really leverage them to better yourself. And when you can do that, I think social media is really at its best. And that's just one of the many things that I love about, uh, about the community that, that I have on, on LinkedIn is their willingness. And I think you, people listening will find that too. If, if you're looking for answers to questions you might have, I might start there because you're going to have, you're going to find a whole lot of people that can answer them and they're going to be very willing. And that's one of the biggest things I've found over the pandemic is just willing people that want to um, give back to the community and really help see people succeed. Cool. I, I have seen much of the same. Um, I want to migrate uh, to uh, kind of a larger situation that's looming over literally everything, um, how the Ukraine-Russian situation might impact the GovCon technology space. So th this is a really good example of, of things I'm trying to get smarter on, right? And how global uh, global events and, and things happening can really have an impact. I mean, the community is really, truly global now, and this is a great example. Um, and I think we've already seen it and I, I think we're definitely going to see more impact within the government government contracting and technology space from um, the situation happening in Ukraine. One in particular is the, uh, the, the CISA guidelines around uh, protecting cyber, your cybersecurity assets, right? I think we're going to see more guidance around that. Um, and at the same time, I also think part of that is going to drive hopefully the the usage of more agile procurement methods to get some of the technologies needed to support enterprises um, into the hands of people that need them. So I think that's one. Um, and then something that I think we've we've also seen during COVID, and, and this is going to exacerbate it, it, things like this, is the sharing of information across the private sector. You, we, we saw it before where cybersecurity companies were trying to share threat information to make sure that they're able to protect their customers in, in the most efficient way possible because it's a national security issue. So you have companies that are, are generally competing against each other, working together to share information to ensure national security. And I think we're going to see that as well as a more, a, a more willing participant in those conversations from government. Even if you're not customers trying to consume that information understand where the different attack vectors are coming from, how to, um, how to mitigate those attacks, how to respond to ransomware uh, situations, things of that nature. So I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to have multiple, multiple impacts um, on, on the community. And we're kind of in a wait and see mode, right, to, to see. Just like when the pandemic hit, everybody was waiting to see how it was going to impact the, the community. And, it, and it, it's had it's definitely had positive and negative uh, effects. I think we're going to see the same thing from this, this situation as well. I, I'm, I'm waiting for the uh, Russian hackers to be unleashed. And, and you know, sooner or later they're going to be. So oh, absolutely. I mean, and, I mean, one, one of the biggest concerns is the, the infrastructure that, that we have in place within the U S right. Our, I think it was last year where we saw an, a, a grid go down in the Midwest to to impact a large number of U.S. citizens. And I think that was just um, a, a shot over the bow to know what can be done from a ransomware perspective. And 
I would like to think that that was something that reinforced the need to to protect our infrastructure, our, our pipeline a little bit a little bit deeper. But um, but I guess time will tell, right? And I think again, like you said, that they're going to be unleashed at some point if they haven't been already. And we need to make sure that we are we've solidified uh, our infrastructure to the extent that we can mitigate some of those attacks. Yes. So I'm going to call my friend Bob Gorley and ask what I can do to my uh, my computer here, my little network <laughs> at home. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to shift gears after after the break, um, and I'll tell you what we're shifting to right after this message. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Brian Chittister of Genesis, uh, also of the podcast Government Huddle. Um, Brian, you've been a big advocate for the customer experience uh, movement for a while now, and there's a recent executive order on that. Uh, what does that cover, and what do you think it means for for the market? Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot of things, right? I mean, obviously, government has had a focus on experience for a while now, um, albeit not as not as much as they should have, um, but but it's still been there. I think this has really been the government trying to put some teeth behind um, what experience really means to not only them, but also their stakeholders, i.e. the citizens. I'm glad you used the word customer experience because to me, that was one of the biggest takeaways from the recent executive order was the use of customer, um, which was really a, a change because government is really looking at their citizens as their customers, as their stakeholders, and also looking at what ROI really is to the to the customer. Um, one, one great example there is around a time tax. So making sure government isn't wasting my time every time I'm interacting with them. I think, I think we'd all agree our time is valuable. And to be able to know that the experiences that government is deploying for me is taking that into consideration is, is important. Um, I think what we've seen over, uh, I mean, my goodness, it, it's uh, over a couple of decades now is that the impetus for driving a more efficient and effective customer experience in government hasn't been there in the same way that it's been for uh, a private sector entity like uh, like a Amazon or, or Target or Walmart, where they're working towards streamlining operations, getting getting financial benefit, and driving customer loyalty. For government, we have to go to government. So the loyalty factor isn't there, right? Um, they're not trying to necessarily get a financial ROI every time every time they're going because we have to if we have to pay taxes it's it's a mandate it's not something we're choosing to do right or I, I would i would probably say that nobody listening would would want to do that um so so what's that impetus and they're finally starting to do more work around that one of them is trusting government which has been at a at a very very uh all-time low um over the past few years as they as they've been um getting the metrics around it and i think driving trust in government is directly correlated to driving civic engagement. And a more engaged constituency is what government wants, what government needs, so that they understand that's a big impetus for them and that's what they're driving towards. Part of it is putting the citizen at the center of it around human-centered design process, um, which again, I, I also think is, is more of a change in the past few years. And this is really calling out opportunities for government to double down on that and, and drive positive outcomes in that regard. 
Right. And you and I have worked with a variety of people in government, me probably a little longer than you. But, you know, you had shows like Cheers back in the 90s that mm -hmm. had uh, the Cliff Clavin effect to drive <laughs> the stereotype of the mail carrier. Um, you know, not true. You know, I know my the person that delivers mail in my neighborhood. She comes by, opens up the big box. I go down and chat with her. Um, you know, she's busting her butt every day. And, and the people, you know, the perception of government work has always been the butt of some jokes, but it's not. Yeah, I, I think some of some of the I mean, some people might not agree with what I'm about to say, but I, I, I adamantly believe that some of the best and brightest people um, that are out there, especially in this next generation uh, of, of workers that are coming out of college and having this public public call for for service are some of the best out there. And they want to give back there. And this is an opportunity and that we could, we could even have a whole on conversation about um, recruitment of top talent around this because it, it is a calling for them. But um, government's really looking at not only bringing in new talent around this, but also how they can uh, reskill the people that are in in that 30, 40 year uh, lifelong government worker category that still want to that still want to be able to work in the in the field that they're in and drive outcomes in the programs that they're in but now they're doing it in different ways um it, it, one of the things when we look at the 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 CX executive order as well and something that I've also spoken about on my show is the uh interrelationship between technologies so if you look at the executive order or even if you haven't looked at it, but just hear a customer experience executive order, somebody might think, okay, well, that just has to do with making sure that they have a nice website and that their call center or contact center is, is up and running and, and is efficient. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, one of the things that the government's really looking at is driving empathy for their citizens. And empathy is not a word when you think about digital experience that really uh, is top of mind for people, but it's top of mind for some of the biggest companies out there. And it's now top of mind for government. And one of the biggest things that I actually talk about right now, because it's a difficult correlation to make is how can you drive empathy in an experience through technology? And I'll tell you how it's, it's that interrelationship of technologies. It is leveraging AI and process automation to ensure that you're not wasting my time in driving a positive outcome. That's an empathetic outcome. It's knowing that if I do call into a government or I go to a website and I log in, that they they know who I am and there's predict predictive and anticipatory uh, uh, technologies in place to figure out what I might be there for. And then I kind of feel heard. And that's driving empathy through technology. There's multiple ways to do, to do it, honestly. But it's, again, finally something that government is looking to do. And it's a it's a massive change in how they've approached it in the past. Empathy through technology is not a phrase I thought I'd ever hear. Here, <laughs> it's it's not one that's comfortable for people, right? Because it's hard. I, I'll tell you, um, one of the first episodes I did on my podcast was with an analyst from Forrester who who leads the the citizen experience practice there, and that was the first time that I heard about empathy 
in experience, in digital experience. And, and naturally I had a lot of questions and that's evolved and that I just had my two year anniversary. So that, that was two years ago that I had that conversation. And now government is finally looking at it because it's something that companies have been looking at for years. So you're absolutely right. It's not something that people hear all the time, but I think it's something that you're going to hear more and more as we move into this, this next phase of experience in government. Yeah, it sounds like you should have that guy back on the show. It's about time, um, right? <laughs> really, it's a perfect time. You know, you talk about the two-year evolution of the idea and now the implementation. So what are, what are some takeaways that companies should be thinking about with the, with the CX wave? So ultimately, when we talk about driving empathy through technology and that interrelationship, the companies that can play in this space are much are much more comprehensive than you would think about. One of the one of the ways to drive empathy is through efficiency, and that efficiency can be driven through RPA uh, or low code process automation. Right, taking taking out so, and this is this is going to be an ironic statement, but when you take the human out of the equation, not only are you saving the government money, but you're you can make it a faster. Uh, process for the citizen, which is is driving a, a positive outcome, or just interoperability. So the connection of technologies together to ensure data flow, making sure that if I show up to a website and I log in, they know who I am. And again, like I said, why I'm there. I, I'll give you a great example. This wasn't at a website, but um, my wife's birthday was in January. And like, like, the good husband that I am, right? Uh, I, I ordered her flowers and they showed, or they, the day came and the flowers didn't show up. And I'm sitting here all day thinking, oh man, she's, she's gonna, she's gonna kill me. And, and I even showed, I, and then all of a sudden I got a text message saying your flowers were delivered and you know what? They weren't delivered. So I had to get on the phone with 1-800-Flowers, but it changes the, the stature in which you're about to approach the conversation when on the other line, you hear an automation once once they they answer your call saying, we see that you ordered this this uh, bouquet of flowers. Is this what you're calling about? So immediately I feel heard and, and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a better interaction than maybe what I thought it was going to be. And that that changes your stance. And obviously and obviously it got resolved because it had to get resolved, right? Any any husband knows that it had to get resolved. But it, it got resolved without having to speak to a human being. I could get, get something reprocessed just by going through in two minutes, pressing a series of buttons um, because they, they knew what I had done. They had all my information. All the, all the systems were connected, which is important. Um, and they can drive that outcome in a way that also saves the company money because they're not, they're not spending uh, money on a human answering the phone. That, to me, is a great process. And that is what you're going to see scaled out across government moving forward. That's the true spirit of what the CEO is trying to do. Cool. We're going to take our last break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm speaking with Brian Chittister today. Uh, look him up on LinkedIn if this is uh, of interest to you. We'll be right back after this. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network. 
helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Brian Chittister of Genesis. And uh, and we've been all over the map on our, our talks, starting with our daughters and and migrating through. To be uh, fair, that's customers. usually how our that's usually how our conversations go. We're generally all over the map, whether we're recording or not. <laughs> yeah, and and sooner or later, our children get into the conversation because they're very important to us. Exactly. Um, as well, they should be. Uh, but right now, I want to wrap up this with uh, with your thoughts on trends in government contracting for 2022 and probably beyond. So speak to me about uh, this strange world we live in. Yeah, I mean, so if anybody's going to know this world, it's you, right? But I'm I'm glad that we can have this conversation. Uh, I, I think, and, and I would be curious to get your opinion here too, obviously, Mark. I think one of the things amongst a lot of other things, one of the things that COVID did was also bring the conversation that that was consistently being had about um, about the contracting process to the surface again because of the need for some of the uh, quick turn technologies that had to get into the hands of of the the federal worker and and I think that's one that is going to become a much more mainstream conversation which hopefully will will have an impact on on how federal uh, agencies can go about procuring some of these things and trying to drive more efficiencies. I think one of the things that we've also seen in the space, and I'm sure you've seen this too, is uh, the consolidation of, uh, of contracts through this, right? We've seen sales increase. Contractors, contractors are still making money out there, but their bids have decreased. So basically there's, there's more dollars out there to be had and but there's fewer opportunities to win these contracts, right? Because you're, you're going to these players. Um, it's one of the biggest trends around this that I've seen has been the ability to connect small businesses with some of the, uh, the larger GSIs out there, FSIs out there to work together. Because as we, as we just saw, they raised the, uh, the percentage of money that needs to go to small disadvantaged businesses by 5%. So by 2025, it's, it's gotta be 15%. So I think you're going to see more of a focus on small businesses too, in the contracting world. Um, It's, it's all about where the money flows. And I think that's kind of where, where the focus is going to be over the next few years. Okay. And we have uh, one vehicle coming out of GSA real soon. Um, that's an ironic phrase for those not picking up on my tone, uh, <laughs> Polaris. And it's designed exclusively for smalls and uh, focusing on hub and women. And this is interesting, plain old ordinary small business with no set aside designation. Um, Polaris is going to replace Oasis SB, supposedly. I, I hope it does, and I, I very much hope it's a, su- a successful vehicle. What do you? What do you, are you hearing anything about this? I, so I haven't, but that makes complete sense. I think the government saw what the pandemic did to small businesses, and I think what they're trying to do is is provide subsidies in the form of uh, kind of intentionality 
around some of these contracts to, to bolster and support them, make them more competitive. The other thing too, is the connection between um, the technologies that these companies are bringing to bear and, and the needs of government. I think it's been more difficult for small businesses to compete with some of the larger businesses uh, within this space. And frankly, the loser in that equation is the government because you're seeing some of the more innovative technologies really happening at these smaller, more, more nimble companies. I mean, when was the last time you saw a, a cutting edge innovative technology come out of IBM, right? So, so you have these, I mean, not to knock IBM, but you, but you have these, these small companies that are doing some really cool things because they have the nimble ability to do so. And you want to make them more competitive. So some of these technologies can be, can be seen and procured into government. You're going to see, a, a, I think, more positive outcomes around digital transformation if we can do that. I saw Watson play on Jeopardy once. Does that count? <laughs> oh, don't get me don't get me started on Watson. Um, but, no. <laughs> but one of one of the really cool things that that we've seen too over the past, I would say five or so years, is companies that are uh, or, or I should call them organizations that are solely focused on trying to help these small businesses be successful with government and government understand how to work with small businesses. One great example is uh, Decode. Um, if, if you know Megan Metzger over at Decode, she's done a great, great uh, job at not only helping these small businesses understand how to navigate the federal community, right? Because as we all know, there's a lot of rules to, to playing here and you don't dip your toe in. You got to go all the way in. And she helps them go all the way in and understand how to speak to government at the same time, works with government entities to understand the value that these small businesses can bring to them. So I think when you when you merge the two, uh, it creates, again, the, the winner there is the government, right? Because you're able to support small businesses and at the same time, get best of breed technology into the ecosystem. And that's what you're really trying to do. Yeah. And I, I have worked with uh, or spoken to a number of these groups over the years, a uh, couple of times for a group down in Huntsville called the Catalyst Center, which mm -hmm. focuses on helping smalls my friend Michelle, who runs the uh, Hub Zone Council, I wasn't able to attend her uh, her last conference, but I promoted the heck out of it on on LinkedIn, and I hear it went really, really well. Uh, so there's a number of groups out there that that help them, but you know the the bottom line for me is the government has more regulations for small business than they do for large, and that still irritates the heck out of me. Yeah, I mean, and and they don't really have. That they don't have the support to even navigate some of these regulations too, the way the way some of these larger companies do. So it, it's one of the reasons again that I mean one of the many reasons you you often see them fall by the wayside. It's an, another one of the reasons why we've seen such a decrease in small businesses working uh, within this community, um, and a decrease in new small businesses coming into the community. So it, something something has to change, and and that's kind of what we're seeing is the intentionality of trying to bolster that community. That's what to me. That's one of the biggest trends that I see happening within this this year and over the next couple of years. Yeah, when I get calls from companies that are thinking about entering the market, I've got three or four books that I recommend immediately. Uh, the first one of which is Steve Coprince's "The Small Business Guide to Government Contracts," which I still think is the best entry point for smalls 
just to get a knowledge of what they're coming up against. Then, then I aim them with other resources, uh, including PTAX, et cetera. I'm surprised one of them wasn't your books because I think they're great references. Um, that you know, for for a lot, my books aren't necessarily for entry level. That's um, true. So. And, and, you know, the opening line of selling to the government is 90% of the companies coming into this market are going to leave within a year blaming anybody but themselves. And I very much believe that, but it's a little discouraging for Smalls say, to open a book. And <laughs> Do you do motivational speaking, Mark? <laughs> it's true, do, though. Do, it's true. Do, do I do demotivational? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, and honestly, that, that, is, that is a dose of realism that's needed. I remember um, during my time at Imix Group, one of the biggest things that I saw, especially on the emerging technology side with these small businesses, is they want to dip their toe in because they know there's money there, but they don't want to go all the way. And it's kind of what I, what I just referenced back when I was talking about what Decode helps these companies do. But if you're going to be successful in the government space, albeit federal, state, local, you have to go all in. You have to be committed to the market because... The, I mean, there's regulations you have to abide by and compliance measures, and and that's just a play in the game. So you're either going to get deterred or you're not, and, and that's the bottom line. So what, what you said is, is spot on, but if you want to be successful, you have to commit, like like most things in life, right? Yep. Yeah, you got to do it. Give me some final thoughts here. We're running out of time. Um, honestly, first of all, let me, let me start by saying thank you for having me on. Uh, this is a hat trick. I think this is my third time on now and every conversation I leave learning something from you. So, so I appreciate that. We always that. have a good time. Yeah. The, the biggest thing I would say is, is the, don't underestimate the interrelationship between technologies, things like the, the CS executive order or the zero trust executive order, so on and so forth. They call for a number of things beyond just customer experience technology um, that that you traditionally think of it, or cybersecurity technology, they're all interrelated. So if you're if you're somebody that works for a company that might you might think plays outside of these, I would I would say you should take a deeper look at what these executive orders are really took, looking to drive, and really really map out where you feel like your company can play because it's worth the time, it's worth the investment. Cool, Brian. Thanks again, man. Always a pleasure. We always have fun. Absolutely. Uh, this is. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on marketing to the government, but over the last decade, I've focused on largely on LinkedIn, social selling, creating a subject matter expert, thought leadership position in the market. If this uh, is of interest to your company, drop me a line. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn or send me an email, markamtower at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank. What if I told you there's a credit card that's made for every kind of foodie? That's why I'm excited to share the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card with you today. Card holders get four times the points on restaurant deliveries, takeout orders, and dine-in meals. Yeah, you can rack up points when you eat out or you order in. 
Plus, the card gets you two times points on groceries, even delivery, streaming services, and gas or EV charging station pit stops. And if you apply today at usbank.com slash altitude go, you'll earn 20,000 bonus points after spending $1,000 within the first 90 days. You deserve a credit card that gives you more and more and more. Apply to become an Altitude Go cardholder at usbank.com slash altitude go. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Your story. It lives in River City. Where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel. Where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another. Where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha. Told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.